I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's my guest is Kevin Parker. He is the CEO of Sustainable Impact Capital Management, or SICM. SICM is a commercial operation that he began in 2013, and its partners include the Kresge Foundation and Capricorn Investment Group. It is a private investment firm that seeks to demonstrate that it's possible to not only invest profitably, but also to do so while driving sustainable positive change. Kevin has been a finance guru, in my mind, for 35 years on the investment experience that he's had. He's been responsible for all the strategic and business aspects of his company. And prior to SICM, he was the member of the management board of Deutsche Bank for 10 years and the former global head of Deutsche Asset Management from 2004 to 2012, where we first met. Kevin Parker, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thanks, Toby. Great to see you again. You, uh, you and I first got to know each other over a decade ago when I was launching what we very ambitiously called a bid to save the earth or the what became known as the green auction at Christie's. We were trying to raise money and awareness on climate issues for four really leading global organizations on the topic from NRDC, Oceana, Central Park Conservancy and Conservation International. Uh, you struck me then as such a pioneer. You were really out front in what now we often think of or talk about as ESG or sustainable investing, impact investment. How did you get ahead of that curve? What was it that you saw over a decade ago at Deutsche Asset Management and led you down this career path? Well, it's actually, uh, Toby, uh, before my career at Deutsche Asset Management, um, I actually started the um, sustainability uh, uh investment idea at Deutsche, but prior to that, really owing to my, my, my upbringing, um, was, was really inspired to uh, really be healthier, live healthier, and really eschew the idea of, um, of man-made chemicals and, and, and products. Mm -hmm. And I saw firsthand the connection, uh, obviously unscientific at that point, uh, between these man-made chemicals and human health. And so really sort of early on back in my early days started to get focused on organics and eating healthier and living healthier. And um, that led me to uh, uh, an investment in a business, which I still uh, am very much involved in, in the wine business, uh, which we converted over to organic and biodynamic farming mm -hmm. uh, back in the mid 90s. Um, that was um, uh, a pretty courageous move. That's uh, Chateau Marie in France. Yeah, Chateau Maris. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, you know that really taught me about uh, sustainability of soils and what you can do to destroy life in the soil with man-made chemicals. Mm -hmm. And by removing all that, um, uh, we saw firsthand about um, how uh, the earth begins to regenerate itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and, and this led me to this idea of sustainability really can be applied to anything. Mm -hmm. uh, we were looking at soils, but certainly air and water and so forth, um, all related and intertwined with human health. Mm -hmm. And so when I took over Deutsche Asset Management in 2004, 
it was a natural platform and pulpit to be able to talk about sustainability and how this was going to become a major theme going forward and how that would impact investment decisions really across the globe from food production to infrastructure to energy and so forth. And so we started to, I formed a group and we started to write about it in 2006. And uh, by the time we finished, we had authored uh, over 40 papers on sustainability, largely what people call ESG today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, so can, if it's not too personal, can you tell me a little bit how you became, you said you were just becoming more aware about organics and other things. Was, was there a health issue in your family or you just experienced something that was revolutionary or was there an aha moment that said, I need to check yeah. this Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my family, uh, you know, were immigrants, um, uh, you know, who moved to North Jersey. Um, and uh, my grandmother moved down to the Jersey shore mm-hmm. <clears throat> where the air was clean and pure as opposed to industrial the industrial part of the state north of the Raritan River. And as I was growing up, uh, a lot of my aunts and uncles and even my cousins my own age were developing cancers and, and other diseases that were, you know, very rare and not supposed to be happening uh, to people, you know, at that age group. Mm-hmm. And it just got me thinking about, well, why is that? And, you know, we're all kind of the same DNA, but, you know, I have five siblings and all of us are extremely healthy and, uh, and face none of these issues. And yet my, my, my cousins and relatives from the Northern part of the state were, were suffering. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, I remember driving in the back of, you know, my parents' car, um, you know, on the way up to see them and, you know, just the smell of the Northern part of the state, just assaulting your nasal passages was, was always a joke in the car. Right. Um, and, uh, and that just sort of said to me, like, this cannot be healthy yeah. uh, for humans. And then years later, uh, you know, many of my relatives passed because of rare diseases and so forth. And just that, that was very sort of seminal in my thinking about human health and chemicals. Mm-hmm. And so then when, and I'm sorry about those losses, I think it's, uh, uh, I've experienced the same thing. We lived in New Jersey for a while and you drive from the bucolic Northwest part and you go in closer, closer to the city or down the parkway. And it's, it's, there's a lot of petrochemical and right, uh, right. action going on there. Uh, so can you say um, how it was to socialize this concept with your colleagues in the investment community? I mean, you did a lot of research and writing and reporting, so that helps. It grounded your work in, in facts and figures, but you had to certainly win people's thinking over, right? So how did you do that as a, a leader? You know, it was a kind of mixed result. Um, you know, we were early on <clears throat> in the idea around sustainability. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, there was just a lot of skepticism. Uh, you know, Wall Street 15 years ago was not... Uh, interested in sustainability um, and uh, uh, certainly not around 2006 when we really got going on it. Uh, you know, by 2007, 2008, we were, you know, well into the global financial crisis and a lot of that got put on on hold, uh, any of the initiatives that did get started. Um, but, um, you know, we, we, uh, we brought in folks who we thought would make a difference, like Al Gore, 
uh, came and spoke at my investor conference in the spring of 2007 before winning the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, really talking about the movie Inconvenient Truth, mm -hmm. uh, which, by the way, was produced by my main investor, Capricorn. Uh, actually, the, the gentleman behind Capricorn, whose mm -hmm. personal money it is, Jeff Skoll, uh, runs a, a media company called Participant Media. All of their movies are about environmental, social, or governance challenges facing the world. Mm -hmm. Probably virtually everyone on the planet's seen a Jeff Skoll movie in the last two years because mm -hmm. uh, he did Contagion over a year ago about global pandemics. Mm -hmm. uh, in any event, um, uh, you know, uh, we employed Al Gore. I spoke at uh, the United Nations uh, multiple times, uh, the Network Against Climate Risk. Uh, was a speaker on the tour around the world, uh, really talking about what this means from an investment perspective. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, we probably convinced half the people that this was a problem and an opportunity mm -hmm. uh, for uh, the investment world to get onto this early. But there were a lot of skeptics. Uh, there still are. Um, and, uh, you know, it was... Um, you know, it was it was fun. It was fun, but it was um, it was uh, it was also uh, difficult in getting people to kind of blindly, uh, in a sense, or you know, uh, you know, step into the sustainable mix. Yeah, I remember uh, as a testament to your commitment to the topic uh, when you and Deutsche Asset Management came on to sponsor the green auction. In addition to putting your name on it and helping us promote it, you actually, I remember you had a separate salon in your beautiful home with your wife at the time with Jeffrey Sachs from the Earth Institute up at Columbia, really driving home the gravitas of the matter, right? Instead of just being a social event, you actually educated those who came along for the process. And I, I think that that's commendable, but I think that also helped support the auction and uh, the following. Yeah, we did things like that. We also launched uh, the, the carbon counter. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, Toby, but uh, yeah. outside of Madison Square Garden, we had a 70-foot sign. Uh, we went to Massachusetts Institute of Technology and said, listen, uh, much like the debt clock, can you, can you convert the carbon emissions into a real-time number? The professors up there kind of scratched their heads and like, who are these guys from, from Wall Street? What are they talking about? And I kind of impressed on them that, listen, if the IPCC only updates the carbon uh, parts per million once every three years, it's kind of a difficult topic to have a conversation around. Mm -hmm. Let's turn it into something real time. Let's try to make it real for people. It's something that can be updated, uh, you know, as I said, in real time. Somebody can look at every day. And um, I remember when we started that, we were at 365 parts per million. We're now over 420. Mm. Um, and of course, in the movie, and who knows if it's true, at 450, the world really starts to see some problems. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that was over 10 years ago. We said by 2026, given the, you know, the rate of emissions, we would exceed the 450 uh, number sometime in 2026. So we're, we're kind of, you know, coming up on that now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, those were, those were initiatives we, we took to, um, to really to kind of ring the alarm bell, mm -hmm. uh, help her, help her ring, ring the alarm bell. We certainly weren't alone by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um, but it was something that, you know, again, the financial community had not embraced or endorsed. And so we were, uh, you know, somewhat alone 
for a while uh, out there before being joined by some of the other banks and so forth that mm -hmm. began to recognize that this was going to be a mega trend. Mm -hmm. and, and now it is, right? It seems to me that everyone is now on board that ESG yeah. is the fastest growing area of investment. So what do you say about that? Uh, I will say that you were there earlier or before others, but what about those who are there now? Is it is it enough, Kevin, or is it is it happening or what? Yeah, I would say, um, look, I, you know, it's, it's all, there's always a debate about how much time we have before some really serious problems set in, mm -hmm. um, you know, as a risk manager on Wall Street, if you know there's a risk out there and you know it's an existential risk, but you don't know when it's coming, you want to get pre as prepared as possible uh, so that if you do wake up one day and you're in the middle of it, you kind of know what to do. Um, you know, has there been that sense of urgency uh, that we're somehow living on borrowed time? I think the answer is no. Mm -hmm. um, however, we've probably seen more happen in the last three years than we've seen in the last 30 years, which is, a, which is an excellent development. So I think most of the world has kind of embraced the idea now that carbon uh, and its externalities is causing a lot of problems. Um, that burning hydrocarbons is not necessarily, um, you know, the, the smart thing to do anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it probably was a necessary evil in the industrial revolution, which took place, but um, we're largely moving on from that. I think we're well down the track of an energy transition. And, you know, the world moved off of coal onto oil and then to gas and now uh, the energy transition, which is occurring, is moving off of oil. Uh, there's a lot of capital, institutional capital and, and individual capital that's chasing that opportunity. And what's really interesting, in my view, is how competitive renewable technologies have become mm -hmm. whilst capturing so little market share. So if you go back 10 years from now, the prediction was, well, this, this is going to take 20 years or 30 years before these renewable technologies become competitive with fossil fuels. And in fact, uh, it's done it in less than half the time. And with maybe 5% or even less of the world's, I'm not talking about hydro, mm -hmm. um, but with less than 5% of the world's energy being produced by renewables, uh, they're already cheaper than fossils. And so the market mechanism is, is doing its thing, right, uh, in, uh, in attracting investment, uh, because there's a great opportunity and wealth creation opportunity in, in being an energy producer, certainly as those energy producing countries have shown us, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Norges Bank, for instance, in Norway has over a trillion dollars in their, uh, in their sovereign wealth fund created because of the production of fossil fuels for the population of Norway. Ditto with uh, the sovereign wealth funds in the Gulf states in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, Kuwait, uh, Qatar and Saudi. Um, so uh, the world has woken up to the fact that there's a fabulous wealth creating opportunity in producing renewable energy and with very little market share gains uh, renewables are now cheaper than fossils. So can you explain to me the market share piece? Is it, is it a matter of getting more consumers to want the, the renewables or do we want to see that shift happen in market share? Um, 
Yeah, I think um, I don't think it's so much demand driven. I, I think it's really, um, uh, you know, it's the availability of capital. Uh, it's the rate at which um, uh, um, that capital can be organized and deployed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the it's the availability of the materials, silicon and 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 wind turbines and others. Uh, there's a production line, uh, as it were, and so uh, you know it can only produce so much of that per year and de and be deployed profitably. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, there's infrastructure uh, that is holding back the deployment of uh, of renewables. Uh, you know, smart grids and so forth, being able to handle intermittent energy production. Uh, you see some problems around the world. Uh, which renewables gets the blame for creating, which is, you know, either power outages or, or, or highly volatile energy prices because of grid constraints. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's a, there's a, there's a lot in the mix. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not as simple. It's not as simple as producing a solar panel, putting it on your roof and, you know, <laughs> have a nice day, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a, there's a lot of constraints and a lot of issues. Um, yeah. But I think the world has come a long way towards sorting out a lot of those issues and moving things ahead. Uh, is it going fast enough? We'll see. Yeah, I'm sort of laughing because almost a year ago I was in uh, San Antonio visiting my uh, ailing stepdad and um, ERCOT and the system grid failed, right? It was it was uh, an unusual frost, a snow that hit and everything got thrown amok and it was several days before we had power water it was but the governor has come through and said they've course corrected now we'll see but i think that was largely the grid system that had failed ladies and gentlemen again today we have kevin parker with us he's the ceo of sustainable impact capital management or sicm kevin can you talk a little bit about your 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 clients or your your service offering? What happens when someone knocks on your door and says, hey, I wanna do a responsible investment? Is that how it happens? Uh, yeah, so we, um, we've been uh, in business since July of 13, uh, managing, managing uh, uh, equity, uh, equities exclusively, listed equities. So stocks that trade on exchanges. Uh, and um, and our pro what our process enables us to do uh, is to really create uh, bespoke solutions. One of the one of the um, one of the interesting things and 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 maddening things, frankly, about the uh, environmental, social, and governance world is that um, everyone has their own view on what that means. Mm -hmm. And so your values and what you would like to see in your portfolio might be very different than mine, even though we broadly agree that sustainability is important. And so what that calls for is a need for more bespoke portfolios that represent the, the wishes and desires and values of the asset owner, uh, it, because it's not a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So the portfolios that we uh, the, and the strategies that we manage uh, are largely um, representative of a view. Um, so for instance, uh, we manage strategies that are uh, completely fossil fuel free. Uh, 
So we have zero exposure to listed producers, extractors of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also recently implemented um, uh, the elimination of downstream emissions. So I don't know if you're familiar with scope one, scope two, and scope three, but it's a it's an initiative to start to look at the, the production of emissions, you know, as you know, part of um, uh, your market cap or your percentage of sales or so forth, all kind of part of the net zero movement. And so, um, uh, you know, one of the criticisms uh, by the folks who are kind of leaders in the space is that you not just have you don't just have to look at um, uh, producers of fossil fuels, but you also need to look at consumers of fossil fuels mm -hmm. and downstream emissions and what are, and and how is that contributing to the overall problem, mm -hmm. and what are those companies doing about it? So, for instance, you know, airlines and utilities are not producers of fossil fuels, but obviously big consumers of fossil fuels, and they're major emitters. And what are they doing to uh, to change their business mix? Yep. Recently, saw a couple of weeks ago, United Airlines had their maiden flight on on uh, on biofuel. Mm -hmm. um, so there there is movement on the part of uh, the emitters. Mm -hmm. And so all, what all that adds up to is the idea that um, uh, people have different views. And so what our approach is, because we're more quantitatively oriented. Uh, is to really build portfolios for people to, uh, for asset owners to really implement their their strategy, their vision, their values uh, uniquely, uh, as opposed to buying a product off the shelf. Mm -hmm. And do you find that most of your clients are family offices or institutions, individuals? Who who are your who's a demographic for you? And also, how has that evolved, or is it evolving from when you started? Yeah. Yeah, the individuals would, would tend to more buy uh, products off the shelf because obviously the, the size of their investments. Uh, family offices, particularly those where the patron may be uh, older and starting to pass the reins onto uh, the next generation, uh, what we see in those family offices is, is, uh, is a very large interest in sustainability. Um, and uh, the notion that uh, people are investing really for their children and their grandchildren's mm -hmm. health and welfare and trying to think about those issues that would impact their children and grandchildren. So where you have that kind of notion, which is typically more in a family office space, generational wealth, if you will, mm -hmm. um, they tend to have a longer term view and tend to take the sustainability challenges facing the earth more seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, institutions, well, endowments, uh, I'll get on to endowments, um, you know, and, and I guess I would say institutions as well. It's really been a mix of those uh, that kind of believe the story, the sustainability story and embrace ESG and those that don't. Mm -hmm. um, so there are certain regions in the world that are more sustainable. Uh, the Nordic countries, for instance, are very interested and very big proponents of it, you might have a different view in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, uh, so you really need to be able to customize. Uh, what I mean by bespoke is really to customize that individual view. Um, and, um, uh, you know, also, uh, as I mentioned, regionally, uh, 
there's a very different view on the part of the Europeans than there, than there is on the part of the Americans. And so the Americans, uh, because of, I, mostly because of legal reasons, trustees and legal responsibilities and fiduciary responsibilities uh, are much more uh, uh, interested in return first, doing good second. Mm-hmm. Whereas we see more European institutions willing to either balance those out a little bit more mm-hmm. or actually put, um, you know, in, uh, put more stock in the belief that by doing good, you'll eventually be rewarded anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's there's those kinds of regional, uh, you know, regional differences of opinion, which, again, gives rise to the need for more customization rather than, hey, here's my product take it or leave it kind of thing. Yeah. So let's stick with that for a second and talk about governance, uh, Kevin. So you go, you're working globally. You've got offices, I think, in Australia, London, New York. As an advisor, do you have one or set of standards that you use to evaluate what's good governance for an equity? Or how, how do you measure and monitor that they are actually governing themselves well? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a whole uh, plethora of third-party uh, research out there uh, with their own scaling and scoring systems, rating things like governance, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, and so forth. Um, you know, our approach is, um, is, is, is a little bit different. Um, we, you know, we started, um, you know, we started out uh, really trying to figure out whether or not uh, there was predictive value uh, in these scores. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're looking at the lens through generating alpha or generating returns for your clients, you, you want to understand that connection, right? Um, so, and, and, and granted, that's a very limited view, but that's what we kind of get paid to do. And so that's, that's the way we look at it. In a personal life, we might think differently, but as a fiduciary and as trying to deliver a solution to a client, um, you know, uh, we started to look at those scores. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turned out, um, uh, you know, a highly rated ESG company, that value might already be in the stock. Uh, and so there's not a high correlation between those companies that are highly rated from an ESG perspective and future stock market performance. Mm-hmm. And that, may, that might sound a little strange, but, um, uh, but as the world is still sorting out what all this means and the value to the bottom line of a company, you kind of take a step back and say, well, maybe that's not such an unexpected outcome. Um, what is true is that bad actors I'll use that phrase, bad actors uh, in the ESG world, those companies do typically underperform relative to their peers. Hmm. So companies that have uh, poor governance ratings, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as an example, would typically underperform those companies in their industry that have good governance ratings. Mm -hmm. Good governance ratings might not mean outperformance versus the benchmark, Mm -hmm. but it does mean outperformance versus your peers in your own industry that are poorly governed. Mm -hmm. So statistically, we found that the only thing that you could say, which was 
predictable and true and statistically significant is that companies that score poorly tend to do poorly. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine but companies that are scored well don't necessarily do well. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine you you get to know pretty well the management of those equities and those organizations you're working with, right? Well, we have a, a bit of a different model in a sense that um, we're you know we're more data guys, so we're we're less interested in uh, talking to people and you know listening to uh, you know uh, stories about what they say they're going to do. Right? <laughs> yeah. We we think that this all comes out in the numbers. Yeah. And our process is to not necessarily be confused or influenced by the charm of a certain CEO or a certain CFO, let's look at the numbers. And is what you're saying actually coming through in the numbers or is it not? Because at the end of the day, uh, the market is very smart in figuring these things out based on the numbers. And so we that's what we believe in. Um, we actually don't want to be influenced by humans uh, in, 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 in their charm and what they say they're going to do, right? It's really about, hey, are you doing what you say you're doing or not, right? And we can see that in the numbers, and that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. But you know, different, different, different models for different folks. Um, some people do, you know, are very good at kind of reading your face and saying, are you telling me the truth or not? Right. We just prefer we're numbers guys, so we just prefer to look at the numbers. Yeah, and to your, as I understand it, then your business model is also built on equities, market traded equities that are, you know, they're audited. There's a certain amount of uh, verification that goes on, so you're well. Served. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And, and and the threat of, you know, legal action if you lie and all that good stuff. So, uh, and the convergence of accounting systems around the world between GAAP and IFRS, you know, has also facilitated a comparison of stocks globally and so forth. So, you know, the idea around the, the production of the numbers and the consistency, uniformity, uh, clarity, and, and, um, and, uh, and honesty in those numbers because of organizations like the SEC and the rule of law and so forth, you know, um, it's a very rich data set. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we have Kevin Parker. He's the CEO of Sustainable Impact Capital Management or SICM. Hey, Kevin, if if listeners like what they're hearing and they want to uh, talk to you or invest with you, what's the best way to get in touch with SICM? Or you? Uh, our website, uh, we have a, you know an info at uh, SICM.com and uh, we, uh, we just respond to emails uh, and inquiries all the time. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. And uh, as, as we, we wrap up 2021, and I thought we were perhaps moving through COVID, uh, it seems like we might have a bit of a setback. What are you seeing uh, in the year ahead? Um, yeah, it's a it's a real mixed uh, you know it's a real mixed bag out there. Um, you know, you've got some of the major Wall Street firms, half of which saying twenty twenty two is going to be a great year, and the other half saying, "Uh oh, look out." Um, so. Um, uh, you know, as long-term investors, we, we're not really market timers. Mm-hmm. So uh, for us, it's about being invested over 10, 20, 50 years rather than, you know, the next quarter mm-hmm. uh, and what may happen. 
uh, having said that, um, uh, you know, you can't sit here every day looking at markets and not have an opinion mm -hmm. uh, or, not, or not pay attention to what's, you know, going on out there. You know, in the, in the decades that I've been doing this, you know, uh, in rising interest rate environments, uh, you know, it's not the best environment for stocks. And we've had, uh, ever since I joined Wall Street, when Paul Volcker was around with 21% interest rates, it's gone from 21% to zero. Mm -hmm. And the market's gone from 900 to 36,000. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, all along the way, obviously, there were times when interest rates were going up. But for all intents and purposes, it's been, you know, a downtrend for the last several decades. Uh, I'm not saying we're reversing that, but it's certainly one of those periods where the easy money uh, through quantitative easing by most of the world's central banks to deal with the fallout first from the global financial crisis in 08 and 09, uh, and now with, uh, with COVID, mm -hmm. uh, would suggest that that period of easy money is over. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what that means is that um, uh, the correlation for assets all going up at the same time is going to change. Uh, obviously, when the Fed is flooding the system with money, uh, everyone's looking for alpha. All the assets, uh, you know, have gone up in tandem. Uh, and we've seen some places that have gotten way ahead of themselves in terms of that risk reward mm -hmm. uh, notion. And so I think next year uh, and possibly the year after, is going to bring more of a differentiation uh, or to use a investment term dispersion in uh, individual stocks, individual industries uh, and companies and, uh, and, and asset classes. So uh, once you shift from a period of easy money for everybody to more expensive money for everybody, certain uh, asset classes and equities companies are ready for that and more resilient in that environment and others are less. Yeah. And so it's, we're stock pickers. So for us, uh, you know, COVID has been, uh, COVID quantitative easing has been a difficult environment, mm -hmm. obviously not from the sense of the market going up, which it has, but for the valuing of assets within that context. Mm -hmm. And so going forward, if it becomes a more stock pickers market, trying to pick industries and stocks that can do well in a rising interest rate environment, um, I think that probably favors us a little bit. Yeah. So uh, do you have any advice? It doesn't have to be for investments or for your business, but I'm thinking particularly of younger people or people who are thinking in a short-sighted way, a short-term kind of way. How do you approach uh, savings and investing? Do you have any sort of quick three tips you give young people about? Like, well, given I'm on the other, I'm I'm on the other side of that mountain now, Toby. Um, yeah. What I would say is that, um, you know, if if I had adopted a policy in my twenties of investing in the stock market every month, but whatever I could afford, right? Mm -hmm. um, but just religiously investing every month something uh, of what I could afford. Um, I, I think I'd be uh, you know much wealthier today mm -hmm. 
than in trying to um, understand the vagaries of the market and trying to pick the tops and the bottoms. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's been proven over and over again, a steady investment program, a consistent investment program over the period of your life will land you in a place that you'll be very comfortable and happy mm-hmm. um, by the time you get to my age. Great advice. Um, so I would suggest to younger people, don't worry about the, you know, the ups and downs uh, over time. Uh, all the demographics long-term point to uh, improving productivity. Um, you know, there's a good portion of the world still doesn't have internet, still doesn't have, en- uh, you know, power and energy, uh, still living below the poverty line, still uh, unable to feed themselves. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a whole lot of wealth creation to go. Mm-hmm. in the next uh in the ensuing decades and don't worry so much about the wiggles uh you know invest for the next 40 years not for the next 40 days great advice and of course the younger we are the more risk adverse i mean sorry the more risk we can take on right because we've got our lives ahead of us yeah that's that's exactly right and you always got time to uh you always got time to make it up yeah. um, but it's really that it's that consistency of approach I think that is going to pay off over the long run because all these wiggles end up averaging out and you're really, you're really focused on the long-term demographic yeah. trend and productivity trend. And that's a bright future. Yeah. And as the saying goes, you have to be in the game to win it. Right. So start well, yeah, you get absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Kevin uh, Parker, I want to ask you one last question is on a personal note, your, your, one of your hobbies, your passion projects is Chateau Maris. So, what is it about wine or about the Chateau that, um, that brings you joy? Well, you know, uh, growing up on Wall Street as a trader, you know, I, I watched blinking screens all day and moving billions of dollars around. Um, and I thought to myself, well, you know, this is n- not really real. Um, I loved video games as a kid. And so it was just like a continuation of that game that I always played. Um, and so, you know, one day I just decided, you know, I just want to make something real. I want to do something, you know, with my hands. I want to get my, my, you know, my fingers in the dirt. I want to do something that make a product that's physical, right? That somebody could look at and say, hey, um, you know, this is interesting. And then that combined with my interest in sustainability, you know, led me to the California of France, which has fabulous growing conditions and is really ideal for organic and what, what I later learned is biodynamic farming. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we embarked on that, uh, you know, really on a kind of a lark, um, you know, 25 years ago, just kind of the bragging rights of saying, yeah, I own a, a stake in a French vineyard. Um, and one thing led to another, it got more serious and we, we thought, wow, this is really a lot of fun and, and so forth. And, um, you know, after 25 years of not using chemicals on the, on the vineyard, we had our we got our wines tested a couple of years ago by the University of Montpellier and, and of the 63 chemicals that are legally allowed to be applied to vineyards in the, in the European Union, our wines tested non-detectable across all 63. Wow. So it's really, a, um, and, and people comment on the purity of the wine, um, not really understanding, you know, necessarily the reason for that, but uh, it is something that is, um, you know, it, it, it's very obvious when you when you drink our wines. And mm-hmm. so, um, 
you know, and, and that conversion over to biodynamics, what we saw was the vines suffered for five years because they got off of the drip. You know, there was no chemical, uh, uh, you know, assistance there in helping them grow. And so they needed to learn how to, you know, live on their own. And they did. And as they did, they got stronger and started to produce better fruit. And what we saw was our, our ratings start to go up. And uh, by 2015, 17, 18 years after we started, you know, we got 98 points from one of the big wine critics out of 100 on our top wine. And, um, you know, and that was really fun uh, to have produced something, a physical product um, that's chemical free, that's actually, you know, helpful to human health mm -hmm. um, and be rated, you know, by your peers as having done something that is, you know, worthwhile. So that's awesome. Uh, but it's been a journey. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's been a really uh, interesting journey. You know, the old adage about uh, you know, how do you make a small fortune in the wine business? You start with a large one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're, we're only now making, you know, you know, profitable, uh, you know, after 20 some odd years. So it's, it's not a business that I would recommend young people <laughs> go into unless you're really in it for the long run. That's so, awesome. But we, we were, and, you know, it was really uh, meant to be a long run business and, We've stayed with it, and and it's it's been uh, it's been gratifying, and and uh, and the wines are great, and and uh, you know uh, we uh, you know we we're enjoying it. It's a great proof of concept as well, right? So, Kevin, if someone wants to, uh, is one able to buy Chateau Maris here in the United States somewhere? Does it, you can buy it online or? It... Oh yeah, yeah, wine winesearcher com and and, um, and Vivino and. You know, any of the online guys, uh, I think even wine.com handles our wine, but um, I like the, the search engines because they, they find the, the place where the wine is the cheapest mm -hmm. uh, because some, some retailers always discounting something and offering 30% off or something. So, um, you know, uh, you can find the wine certainly online. If you just Google it, it'll tell you where to find it. Um, we are very present in the New York metro market and 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 across the country now in places like California, um, and Massachusetts and Texas and uh, and Illinois and Florida. So um, and and globally as well. Kevin Parker, again, thank you for joining us. Kevin is the CEO of SICM, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you for listening to the Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.